Hey, Patrick, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I don't want to talk about this that much, but I'm kind of shell-shocked today. I was talking to someone and they let me know that their side hustle is selling, I don't even know if I want to say this, selling their underwear, used underwear, for $120 a piece on the internet anonymously. So that's what I'm dealing with in my head today. Welcome to Tradeoffs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and ProfitWell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about asynchronous communication. Build more in Slack so I don't have to link off Slack. Product-led growth. This idea that people want to share parts of their experience with the product with other people. How to measure value on a product team. What is the mission metric? And getting towards the mission metric as much as humanly possible. And much more. If you are earlier stage or low volume, lifetime value sensitivity is kind of all over the place. What's up, dude? Not much, man. How you living? Living large. Large hair. Large hair. I got a great anecdote to start off the pod for you with. Let's do it. Had an interesting conversation today. I did not know this was a thing, but I met someone. We were talking about like entrepreneur stuff and ideas, and they let me know that they sell their used underwear on Craigslist for $120 a pair. They don't have to meet the people that they sell them to. Those were all my questions. I was like, empowerment, do your thing. But like, is it ever like creepy, feeling safe? And they're like, it's all through the mail, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where sometimes you hear these ideas and they just kind of like open your mind to, oh, interesting world. Markets everywhere. I only have one question. Okay. Did you convince the person to make it a subscription model? <laughs> it wouldn't be a bad subscription, I imagine, because we were talking and I was like, okay, does this get into like OnlyFans? Like, do you also have an OnlyFans and things like that? Um, and she said, no, she doesn't because like she doesn't want to go that far. And she likes that she has her privacy basically um, because it's even kind of interesting. Like she gets paid a bonus if she includes a selfie but she doesn't have to include her face. So it's interesting. So it's like a very, you know, it's it's kind of like she can maintain her maybe public anonymity persona, private as as persona, possible. anonymity, yep. um, but still, you know, get that bag, right? And so uh, she doesn't have an OnlyFans, but she did say, and I was like, oh, like because growing the business, she's like, she doesn't need to grow because she has a lot of repeat customers. So I guess I don't want to get into it too far, but I guess I imagine the certain allure of that month's pair of underwear wears off to certain people. And then uh, all of a sudden there's, there's, there's repeat customers. And so it is interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know if she's going to go full subscription, but markets everywhere, markets everywhere. Markets everywhere. No doubt. And that's how we start off the pod today. We start off the pod with weird things in our lives, basically. But uh, how are you doing? How's everything going? I know it's been a busy week. I know you probably don't want to talk about it, but like hectic week. How'd that go? It's good. I've had about 40 meetings in the last three-ish, three-and-a-half-ish days. So it's been good. And That's meetings wild. for all kinds of things. So yeah, things I don't want to talk about, but all kinds of things. And they've been great. And yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things. And like, thankfully, I'm one of those people that gets, as you probably can guess and know, gets a ton of energy from meetings. So I'm actually not dead at the end of the day. And in fact, it's the opposite, which is like, it's like the Energizer Bunny. I'm like, all right, can we keep going? Because like, I'm just going and like, I don't need to stop. Interesting. Yeah, are that's they all Zoom like, or are they in person as well? Or how do we? They're all Zoom. Interesting. So no Zoom fatigue. I have never had that. Interesting. I completely understand it. Like I completely understand it. Like I actually totally get it, but I've never had it where I can say, hey, it was Zoom that did it. I can say it was a type of meetings. I can say all those things, but I can't say it was Zoom that did it. 
So it's not a Zoom fatigue at all, ever for me. In fact, literally, I've been like the Energizer Bunny where I could just keep going on all the days this week on that. And I have. I've even called some teammates at like 9 or 10 p.m. Huh? Are you an extrovert? I know it's kind of like not a binary thing, but I'm just Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes and no. So for me, from what I know about myself, it's more like I get a lot of energy from other people. Like it it feeds me. Like it's good. I like it. I do the things I do at my businesses because it's the people. Like for me, I know that's cliche, but like for me, particularly, specifically for me, the people I work with. Ideas too. Yeah, but not my own, right? It's like the combo and the back and forth. Like that's why you and I talk, right? Like ideas come and they're like, it's just a flow. I really enjoy that. I could literally do it 24 seven and probably not sleep and not like have any issues. Uh, for myself. But at the same time, the one thing I noticed is if it's the same person or even set of people repeatedly, that's what burns me out actually more. Interesting. So the variety and the frequency are two things I really play with for myself to make sure I have energy for things. So that's why if I've had a lot of internal meetings, it's all with the same people. And then I go talk to a founder about their problems. It's like a medicine for my own company for a second, not because of anything particular, but like, oh, okay, cool. I had something else to worry about that I'm not as stressed about or not as, you know, incentivized in or uh, whatever you want to call it, invested in. And so that's me. I haven't heard other folks like kind of have that same MO, but like that's definitely mine. So when you ask introvert, extrovert, I think it really depends. Like I have no problem being alone. I don't really have a problem being around other people. My problems are more on the frequency and types of people and who and kind of things like that. Even the types of convos, I'm pretty okay with different variety and different things and all that stuff. So we I actually it's funny is like I, I think I'm similar a couple of ways. So one, now I'm realizing why I both consciously and subconsciously, when we were like meeting up in IRL, IRL if you will, like I would never schedule meetings after our like lunches or like our teas because it would last forever. And then also I started doing that, but then sometimes making sure I scheduled my flight because we're just going to not stop kind of thing. So the way I structure my day is like nothing until as late as humanly possible. And then I start with energizing meetings and then I put all of my, like, I kind of know these meetings are not necessarily because of the topic, but it's it's actually more of a boring thing. It's more of like a a boring deal. And I do those as late as possible. So this is why this is the last meeting. No, I'm just kidding. I'm okay. But yeah, it is what it is. You know, what's also interesting is like, I've been playing around with, you and I've talked about this a little bit, but we haven't gone deep on it. I've been playing around with the async stuff. Yes. So. So I started testing out Volley and what I'm finding, it's not a, it's not a tool, it's a mindset. And I've started trying to get the, you know, lieutenants, captains, whatever metaphor you want to use around me to start doing it as well. Meaning like someone will bring something up and I'll go, oh, I think that's actually a really good thing to do async. You know, let me know when you got it and let's, let's try that. Right. It's the first like week and a half. So it's a little bumpy, like. I'm getting people into an app. The app's kind of annoying because I'm in Slack. Then I got to go to an app. It's kind of like another thing to check. But in, in Volley, just for those who don't know, it's kind of like it's a loom that's built for async communication. I think that's the best way to describe it, where basically you and I can like communicate back and forth in um, videos or screen shares or even some text but I can speed you up. So instead of like this meeting where I'm like listening to you, when I listen to it, I can listen at one and a half, two X speed. I had a moment today where I was like, oh my God, this is so great. 
Um, I was walking to the gym and then basically I was listening to someone said, I was able to respond, they were unblocked, all these other things, which I thought was really cool. So I think what I'm going to do is next week is basically just invite a whole like team or two in and then try to experiment with that. And then I think you can push those conversations to Slack as well. So it kind of like will show up in Slack and then people can kind of go back and forth. But yeah, it's interesting. And you're you're further ahead, both mindset and tactically on this. So would love to hear your thoughts on like async and stuff like that. I just said thank you to you at first because like you got to the point that I keep trying to make to people, which is it's not about the tool. And yet when people talk about these topics, especially in the case of distributed work, remote work, hybrid workplaces that are all topics that are coming up now and will continue to for a while, they go to the tool. And that's when like my brain just starts shutting off and it's like, oh, they're talking about the tools. Great. There's a lot of tools. The tool facilitates it, certainly. Like, Sure. I was using like QuickTime for this, and that was annoying as hell. And Volley just like made it easy. No doubt. There's Volley, there's Yak, there's Loom, there's Around. There's, I mean, there's a countless number of tools that make all of this easier. And that's cool. And now like Slack is launching their own version of some of these things. I think they're going to go more async, but it's all as well synchronous some no? of them because they launch huddles or something. The stuff they started with is is the synchronous stuff, which is probably smart for them. It's already very async though, and you're probably sending these things around on Slack anyway. But like, imagine if you could send something on Slack and never have to leave Slack, right? Like that's really the magic. And so I'm looking for the tools that give me that, where it's not a link I have to click off to. Right. And I think we're going to get closer to that. And that excites me more than anything else because I'm already in Slack. And if I use a tool, the tool facilitates the workflow in Slack. So that's my little mini rant on like any of these tools building these async things, like build more in Slack so I don't have to link off Slack. Right. And Slack has some work to do too to make that much easier. Totally. And here's my question though, because this is how I feel. Right. And it's a really good lesson, I think, for a lot of uh, product folks, because when you think about paradigms, right, or at least this is how I view it, when you think about certain paradigms, like if I go up and I try to battle Slack right now and I go, hey, yeah, that's cute. You want to use this in Slack, but you should be doing everything you're doing in Slack in my tool. It's almost like a non-starter conversation because it's like I have to get 80 some people and growing like to go to a different paradigm and like this is now fully featured or more featured than not. And I think that for me, the the bigger lesson is if you want to kind of disrupt something, let's say that actually is the right answer, you have to use the current paradigm and use it to grow and then break the paradigm. And I think our buddy at Drift, Mr. DC, is basically doing this where there's a new way to like grow, you know, with this whole revenue, you know, kind of acceleration movement that he and his team are working on. But they can't be like, don't use CRMs anymore. You should only use Drift. They have to go, no, 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 we work with Salesforce. We work with these things. And then incrementally over time, you get to a point where you're like, wait, do we need Salesforce? Right? There's a moment that that's going to come. And I think that that's, that's a really big product lesson here because I think so many of these communication tools like to go, no, 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 just use us as this next thing. Um, use us as a separate thing. And it's like, no, 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 you should work. Like I should almost not even know. And it's a risk, right? And that, my question to you is like, what's your view on that? And two, like, is there a risk that you almost become like synonymous with the tool and therefore you don't have like your own identity, if you will? So we have, we have this dilemma too, if I'm hearing you correctly about the dilemma. So our current product in Nira, it only connects to Google workspace. We have a bunch of other integrations in the works, like a lot of them, but Google workspace is the key for us today for a number of reasons. And it's both pleasing and also a little bit scary that when people see our tool 
they say, hey, how come Google doesn't provide this? That's one thing they say. Another thing they say is, oh, this just feels like a Google tool. Not just, they're like excited by that. But they don't mean a Google tool like Google's workspace admin. They mean a Google tool like Gmail. And the reason for that is like we build good product. And that's like what they're seeing and feeling and the products they use are not very good. But the big problem is we don't want to be identified in the long run as a tool just for Google. But our current positioning, it makes the most sense to say that because that's the integration that we have today. And that's the integration that we're focused on customers who have and use Google Workspace and have the problems that we solve for them. I think that, you know, at some point, the way to deal with this, not in our market, I think we have the way we're going to deal with it is integrate more tools and create something holistic across tools, which is everything we're working on. And we'll be fine. Like I'm, I'm convinced that there's a play there across tools. We know what integrations we needed to do. We know the product itself is going to feel like a multi-app, like manage things across apps thing, which is cool. But in the case of Drift, the move there is literally the same move HubSpot did, which is just go throw out the free CRM when you're ready. Just go throw it out. It's table stakes. Just give it away. Call it a day. What's the big deal? And that's your on-ramp. Like, it's, it's a dumb idea. It's HubSpot already did it. It was smart for them to do it. So maybe it's not a free CRM. Maybe it's something different in the case of Drift. I don't know what it is, but like, if you're truly in the sales space, you can't build some little dinky tool. You have to build a process, a system, Full thing. something yeah. bigger. And at the end of the day, the bigger thing is some form of CRM. So the day that like HubSpot throws out a free CRM, which they did, is the day that they say, hey, we're a Salesforce competitor. And so the day Drift does something to establish that, hey, there are a lot more than just we integrate with these things. We also have a version of these things is another way to think about it. So what I really believe in, and this is just a strategy, I think HubSpot is a good example of a strategy, which is throw out the baby version of the thing you integrate with. That's it. If you do that, then you have the market of people who don't use that thing starting to use your thing for what that thing does. So then the inevitable happens if you can staff your company properly from a product and engineering standpoint, which is you make that little dinky thing that's the baby version over time better and better. And so then you're basically solving for what a lot of people call platform risk, right? In our market, we're not going to build what Google does. We don't have any intention to. It doesn't make sense. So it doesn't work for us. Our tool is valuable because it integrates with this one tool and helps you protect your document. And over time, it'll integrate with every tool you use that makes sense in the context of what our value prop is, right? So that's different. It's a different play, right? It's like a a layer. It's a layer on top. It's meant to be a layer on top. It needs to exist across tools, blah, blah, blah. Cool. That makes sense. That's a different play. This play is literally, you're basically taking the complement, which you integrate with, and pulling it into your own suite. And you're doing that at the exact right time. So I think HubSpot really made the push. And my timing could be off, but I'm pretty sure I'm accurate because I remember this. They really made the push into the free CRM after they went public. I don't know if I'm quite accurate on like when they really started the push, but it felt like to me they went public and then they made the push. Why? Well, Salesforce is a really, really, really large company. One of the top three in SaaS, I think, if not number one. I don't remember where the current stats are. So now they have a really amazing narrative for the market. Hey, we're just like them. Look over there. CRM. Cool. Right? And the market appreciates that. 
So we have to always think about, I think, our audience. Who do we serve as customers for sure? But there are other sets of customers once you're a public company. You could even argue that as a private company, your investors are a set of customers. At least that's how we think about it. That's why we send an investor update every month. That's why we try to learn what they like and don't like about our updates and how we're communicating with them and tune it and do our best to fix it, right? Like it's the same thing. If you treat all these folks like customers, which really means you're developing products for them, then like you just have a whole different lens on all this stuff. And some of the product initiatives are meant for a different type of customer. Like I would say a free CRM. Yeah, it's great. Their free CRM is good, actually. I've heard a lot of people like it. There's a bunch of stuff it doesn't do that Salesforce does, usually around reporting and those kind of things. But at the end of the day, they have it. And one of the customers for it, in my opinion, is the people that are going to invest in HubSpot stock. So I know it's a little offshoot, but like those are the strategies to me. Either you're a layer on top of multiple tools, so then your platform risk goes down over time, or you're basically just pulling in the basic versions of those things. Even in our business, we have a play where we're going to pull in basic versions of things, not that Google does, but maybe, but things that other companies in our space do. And we're going to give those away for free. It's going to be part of our core strategy. Because giving away, as you know, giving away things for free that other companies charge for in massive markets is a market making move. So that's my sort of rant and thesis on this. But this is stuff that swirls in my head way too much. Yeah, it's interesting. The thing I think about too is it's hard to be a system of record or the core of anything, right? Like it's hard to be GitHub. It's hard to be a CRM. It's hard to be a marketing automation suite. It's hard to be these types of things. So you kind of have options of like, if you're going to take it over, you better raise a crap ton of money. But do you augment? How do you augment these types of things? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And this is where also like, we've thought about with our integrations, like our out integrations, like get revenue data into HubSpot, like seamlessly. There's huge advantage. Do we charge for that? Do we not charge for that? Because there's advantages in multiple different places. And we've done the hard work. We've done the the data cleaning and things like that. That's the hard part. We're already giving that away for free. So it's like literally just getting that from one place to another. And it's just interesting thought. It's another one I've thought about a bunch. I think like when you think about, do you give it away for free or not when it's an integration? I think there's a, one si- simple litmus test that at least is a good starting point. It might not be the final uh, place you land, but like it's a very simple litmus test. And that litmus test is this. Basically, it's so dumb. Do our customers pay for that other tool or not? Like, do they pay for HubSpot in this case? Yeah. Do our customers pay for it? Because if they don't pay for it, maybe we should give it away for free because they don't pay for it anyway. So why would they? The anchoring is different, right? And again, you know more about this than I do in terms of psychology, but like that's one take. Another take is a lot of these products have plans. So you could almost, and this is a move we're thinking of in a bunch of areas, but like they have plans, you have features. Some of those features won't work on certain plans. Like Shopify Plus is a good example. If you have a product that integrates with the cart, Shopify Basic or free or whatever Shopify's got, no good. It won't work. But if you want to help people optimize their carts, they have to be on Shopify Plus. I don't know if that's changed, but that's what I recall when I was researching this a while ago. And so if that's the case, then you have your own tier you could do. All the features you provide with those integrations is kind of great. I don't see the lose there. I just see a win-win. So that's that, that's kind of how I think about it. I'll tell you what we're thinking when we stop recording. Sounds good. Uh, I, I, got a, I got an idea and I, I'm not sure if it's, it might be very good. I want to get it out there before others. I know Those one of the our best. competitors listens to this podcast, our mutual friend, uh, Brian, 
uh, who took over operations at Bear Metrics after the acquisition. And so shout out to him. Oh, shout out, Brian. What's up? I know. He responded. Um, I threw out the the prompts. Hey, what should we talk about? And his response was me. I mean, we wouldn't talk about his inferior product. We would talk about him. No, I'm just throwing shade. It's all good. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> well, he inherited the product. He's got to fix it now. So hey, good luck, I know. Buddy. He's got to fix it. Fix it, Brian. Come on now. You want to get into some Q&A? This has already been dense and I like it in a good way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's do that. Let's let's get let's knock those out. But what I was gonna let's say is wait, hold on. Oh, I'm sorry. When are you gonna hire Brian? I know this has been a question kind of underneath the surface for many years for you, but like, come on. When are we gonna hire Brian? Well, Brian, I would love to hire Brian. I don't okay. know. I think he's having fun. In order for us to hire him right now, we probably have to buy bear metrics. And I think the purchaser of bear metrics, someone I respect, so I'm gonna throw a little shade but so I'm not going to say his name, basically overpaid for the product. So I don't know. He's got a vision. They've, they've been doing really well with it though. I think, I mean, some of the stuff they're doing is kind of the classic PE playbook, which kind of aggravated some of the indie kind of segment of their customer base, which, you know, I can understand. And some of it, like we wouldn't have done, but some of it's working too. So, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the right way to roll. Um, it's just kind of based on growth, based on feedback, those types of things. But uh, yeah, I would love to work with Brian someday. And that's why when he uh, when he told me that uh, he took this over, I was kind of like, okay, well, I guess we're enemies. No, I'm just kidding. We were. I was like, dude, I'm so pumped for you. I know you wanted like a shot at something like this. And so I'm excited to see what he does with it. Well, there you go. There's the first answer to a question. There we go. So we talked about you, Brian. Talked about you as the first one, but were you going to say anything else or that, that was what you were going to say? That's what I was going to say. I do miss talking with you and Brian in person when, when we I know. back in the day. Oh so yeah, that's those right. Those are some of our I, most I totally fun conversations. Yes. We had a lot of convos. They were fun. Yeah. Here's my favorite Brian story. So I don't think he's embarrassed at all. I think he's actually proud. I'm proud of him for this. I think after one of the recurs, we went to Whole Foods to get like dinner and this was after like day three or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly when in the timeline it was. But recur was done, after party was done. We went to Whole Foods and we all got dinner. And Brian basically got, I'm pretty sure it was a half gallon of chicken noodle soup. And he ate all half gallon of that chicken noodle soup. And I'm proud of him for that. It's a little weird. I think he might be a little embarrassed, but he shouldn't be embarrassed. But that was good. That was very, very good. But yeah, we'll we'll in person soon. We'll definitely in person soon with with Bry Guy at some point. Interesting question came in from let's see, Chris over at Lifter LMS. He's just smart guy on Twitter. You know, that's not his moniker, but that's how that's how I think of him um, as we've had interactions all over Twitter. And then Chris Handy as well kind of talked about it. The whole concept of community building as it relates to product. And I, I'm going to kind of take a step back a little bit and just like community building in general. I think you've done a really good job with this. Um, and then there's some some of our you know peers who have done just taken it to the next level. Chris added, I'm looking at building in public for a project and wondering a lot like how community can affect willingness to pay well finding product market fit. Interesting question that I can maybe collect some data on at some point, but I guess long story short, community building. This is kind of like the next thing, I think. What, what's your what's your initial take? And then we can kind of unpack this one because I think this is one we could talk about for a while. I think people confuse community building with aggregating an audience. Interesting. And Tell that's my first shot at it because if it's an aggregation of an audience, is it really a community? And that's the debate. So you have an email list. Is it a community? Is it an audience? You have a Slack team, which is a community, or Discord. Let's use Discord because it's easier to explain Discord sure. and Slack in this context. Is that a community? Is your Discord a community? 
Is it aggregating an audience? So, so what do you define community as? I think you know him, but David Spinks, who's a community expert that like I, I constantly like just bother him and ask him every now and then, hey, what what's community? He tells me the same thing, which is his framework and his principles. And when I look at all the stuff that he says, it's like it's the tribal human like concepts, right? Ego and uh, you know, all those things. He doesn't bring those up, but he's it's basically feeding on all those things that we care about as human beings when it comes to being collective, being tribal, like having a community of shared interests and things like that. So I would just throw back on this and say building in public is one thing. Building a community is another thing. And aggregating an audience, I say it very specifically, aggregating an audience is another thing. And sometimes all of them are related and sometimes they're not, right? And that's what I would try to unpack when someone tells me they want to build a community. I would say, well, these are there's three things here. Which one are you trying to do? Are you trying to do all three? How should you start? Because some people, because of their audience, maybe you start with an email newsletter and then you do the Slack community. Maybe you start with dinners with those people before you build the community, right? So like your goal should be to figure out where your audience hangs out and how best to engage with them and then how to take that and create your own place that they hang out, whether it's a community or an email list or something else. So that's kind of my short, hopefully concise uh, response to it, which nobody probably expected because everyone just says, oh, community, yeah, yeah. But like David Spinks is my friend. And when he says community, he doesn't mean what most people mean when they say community on Twitter. And he's the community expert. So uh, honestly, on this stuff, I usually defer to him. Be like, is this community or not? <laughs> Does it is, it is it definable as a community based on your definition, buddy? Right? And that's the question. Yeah. Let me back up a second. What What then defines a community? If I have a community versus an audience, et cetera, and I know it's kind of unpacking Sphinx, but just want to kind of understand what you're... you're I don't even think at this point it matters. What I'm trying to say is like, here's why I say that, right? Like there's moments in time where I will treat my Twitter account as an entire community. All those followers, all those people who reply, all the tweets I do. When I get in a mindset like that, I'm tweeting about a poll. I'm asking a question to the community. And these are just a community of shared interests. What's their interest? Whatever Heaton's interested in, right? Because they're fo- they're following me, right? Sure, they can engage or not with tweets, but what is a community? The old school ones are like BBSs, IRC forums, right? Like, and there's a sense of belonging there, right? And like, and like, if if I do a tweet and it pops off, like my community liked it. If I do a tweet and it doesn't pop off, but it does some, it has some action. Certain folks in my community liked it. Right. So like on one hand, I said what I said and I said, hey, is it really a community? Are you aggregating an audience? What are you doing? On the other hand, because of how open social some of these systems are, you're kind of forced into community thinking. Community thinking is more not about aggregating an audience. It's about engaging an audience. So I think the levers and what you're trying to do is very different when you have those different mindsets about it. Like I'm not trying to aggregate an audience on Twitter personally. I'm actually trying to build a community at this point. And I don't think I'm doing the best job yet, but that's my MO. That's my like what I want to do so with it's it. So it's more of a mindset and a framework to guide communication than anything. Yes, I think so. Because like if you think about a forum, a forum is a community. There's threads that's, that, that are there. Not everyone engages with every thread. In a Slack community, not everyone engages with every channel. But one thing about community that's common is there is programming in a community. 
There is a webinar that happens every week. There's an Q&A that happens every week. There's an AMA that happens every week, right? Like it's like a, it's a whole thing, right? So, and, and ultimately, whether you believe this or not, it's a form of marketing. Building in public is a form of marketing. Aggregating an audience on an email list or whatever way you're doing it is a form of marketing. And community is a form of marketing. It just is. And a lot of people don't want to admit that. So at the highest level, it's more about what works for you. What are you willing to continuously create programming for? In what medium? And then all of them can turn into community. Like when we send emails on our email list, we get responses. When Marie and I send it on our product habits email list, we're doing one on SOC 2 right now in security and compliance. And like, it's kind of a boring topic in some ways, but it's a really important one in today's world. And we're getting more responses than we ever thought we would on our content, this boring content, so to speak. And it's because it's, on, it's top of mind for people. Is this going to be top of mind too. for people in one or two years? I don't think so. But again, it's our programming, right? And we tre- so we even treat that email list as a community at this point. And we want them to engage and we ask them to reply and we ask them to fill out some surveys and stuff to help us out and help them out. And then we give them the results of it. So in some ways, I know I said what I said, but like, I think all of it is community driven at this point. And the principles that David Spinks would like just throw down right now, if you were here about community, you can map to all these things, even as simple as my Twitter account or yours or anyone's. So that's, that's kind of the way I think about this. It's, it's a non-answer to be honest, and I'm willing to admit that. But at the end of the day, the question is like, yeah, it impacts everything. (laughs) Of course it impacts willingness to pay because you're building brand when you do this stuff. So I would predict, and not that you've done the research yet, but I would predict that the willingness to pay is higher because people's affinity with brands and and other people is really high and community implies that. So that's kind of how I think about it. I know that was long, but that's like the thinking, at least in my mind. We actually already answered this in data. So it's very similar to freemium in the sense that I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I could find them and share them whenever we post this in the show notes. But basically, those people in the community, their average order value, if it's an e-commerce brand, is higher. Their ARPU rises at a higher rate and is higher um, than those who aren't in the community or the membership. Um, and retention tends to be much, much better. So just kind of anything you would expect. But I like the idea of engagement because that gets a little bit measurable, right? So I, I don't just do like a classic like AB cross of are they in the community, are they not? I can actually look at like how much engagement is there? You know, people who open the email, people who click through the email versus those who don't, which kind of gets really interesting as a you know, as someone who's trying to look at the effectiveness of something. But yeah, it's interesting. Okay. I think I don't have much to add because no, 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 it's fine. I wasn't, I wasn't saying that, that cheaply. I I do think though that the real answer here is go find David Spinks. He wrote a book called the business of belonging, how to make community your competitive advantage. I also really enjoyed one book I did read was get together. That was from Stripe press, which was really good get together, how to build a community with your people. It's a little bit higher level and they define community, at least from what I remember, community as it's like your team, your you know customers, all types of stuff. So it's got a couple of different levels. This was a good one as well by Bailey Richardson. But I would check out Spinks and then I would check out Get Together as well as kind of secondary book. But yeah, that was interesting. All right, you want to move on to the next one? Let's do it. All right, let's go with Saeed... 
asks two questions. His second question is similar to other questions. So we'll start with Saeed. How to really understand value you deliver to customers and how to leverage that in business and pricing, business model, positioning, et cetera. So how do you really understand value you deliver, Heaton? You answer this from like product. I'll answer it for more of the, the go-to-market aspect of product. If your customers are raving lunatics about your product, that's definable value. Anything less than that is not hitting the mark of value. That's like the first thing I'll say. So your bar you're trying to reach is raving lunatics, period, full stop. How do you measure that, Heaton? They're screaming about your product. If somebody hates on your product, they're jumping in and saying, no, 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 you're wrong, right? And the classic one is the people who are raving lunatics about Apple and the people who are raving lunatics about Android, right? It's a flavor, different MO of people, different needs and wants, but both of them have raving lunatics, like, and we know this, right? So that's the bar. I did this purposely. I didn't say Apple-like raving lunatics. I said, there's Apple raving lunatics and there's Android ones too. Both products are loved. They literally are loved by different people usually. I actually love both, but that's a whole different story. But like, there are people who are raving lunatics about those products. Even Stripe. There are people who are raving lunatics about Stripe. Developers love Stripe. Developers love Twilio. So to me, that's the bar. Anything less is not good enough for my businesses at least, and that's what I'm aiming for. And there's all kinds of ways to measure it. You can measure it with MPS. You can measure it with people unsolicitedly telling you all kinds of great stuff. You can measure it when you're on a demo and they say that was the best demo they've ever had. And that's what we've gotten on some of our demos. So like, yeah, that might not be a raving lunatic, but it's it's like on the way there. So when you're getting true, believable, validated, positive affirmation about what you're doing and the product you've built, that's value. Anything else? is not value. An investor saying it's awesome, great, but that's not value. An investor who could be a customer saying it's awesome, that's value, sure. Yeah, because like they're going to pull out their credit card and pay, right? Or they're going to use and actively use, which is fine too in certain products where paying isn't the key. So that's the way I look at it, right? The, the support emails you get, the tweets you get, all those things are the raving lunatic status that you're trying to achieve with a, any product or any endeavor you do, the real tangible value comes from people's unsolicited reactions. That, that would be the more pithy way to say it. And then I wish I could give the answer you're probably going to give. If you don't give it, I'll give it, but I'm, I'm waiting for your answer. What do you think I'm going to talk about? I don't know. For me, like I've just been blown away at the extreme value that the process you taught me for pricing research provides from a, which customers get value from what standpoint? I don't know. For me, like it's like a product person's dream. Let me start somewhere and then I'll back into that. So the first thing, the overarching point is I think that there's a couple of flavors of product people and I think they fall into like one of two categories kind of in a very general sense. One, all gut, all feel. And those folks are typically not as successful. There's some of them that are very successful. So Maybe they're the most successful product folks, but very small portion of that group get to that level. And then the other level are the strugglers. And what I mean by the strugglers is they like sweat, maybe not like in an anxiety, stressful driven way, but they like sweat things. They try to look at numbers from every different perspective, qualitative, quantitative. They're looking for like the qualitative stuff you're talking about. They're, you know, kind of filtering a bunch of different information. And then there's another group that are just project managers. They're not even product people. That's why I'm not even putting them in these, these two groups. But I think that the biggest thing that's interesting is that the group that struggles is always looking for a metric. And the problem is, is for looking for a metric is that there isn't a perfect metric. There's frameworks 
there's things that you use to walk through a problem. NPS is one of them, price optimization or willingness to pay or max diff. These, these are some that I'll talk about in a second. But I think that for me, what, what I've kind of found like to grasp onto uh, because there isn't perfect data and there never will be is I like thinking through what is the mission metric and getting towards the mission metric as much as humanly possible. And what I mean by that is what is the metric that at the end of the day, the customer cares about? That is the thing that they care about. And sometimes it's not going to be that measurable. Sometimes it's going to be like number of times they felt joy, right? You know, and you're going to have to like back in to, to kind of think through that. But in a lot of times, especially in B2B, it's, it's, it's measurable in some way. Your customer might not fully agree with your measurement and all these other things, but like directionally they'll agree with it. And I think when you can align to a mission metric, so for us, it's did we make you more money? You care about me making you more money. And we can align that not only to our value prop, our pitch, our reinforcement, our engagement, but all the way to our pricing as well. And when you can get that nice, elegant, you know, kind of kind of fit, you start to rally your entire team, not just product, but others around what is our goal? Where our goal is to do X, right? And Shopify has this as well, where it's like, you know, GMV, right? They think about GMV. Um, HubSpot is how much our customers are making in, in revenue and they can't measure the revenue. And so they take a step back and it's like, well, contacts, right? Like, are we getting our customers more contacts, basically? Um, and it's a little bit of, it's more complicated for HubSpot now, but that was kind of what it looked like previously. And so that's what I kind of latch onto is, you know, the screaming mad fans. That's a little hard for me to grok because I, you know, it's probably my own insecurities and vulnerabilities of why that's so hard to grok. So like I latch onto the mission metric and kind of like go from there. The thing that you kind of mentioned, though, and, and, and the thing that I find interesting is like, I don't think people do enough research, either qualitative or quantitative, in any way to figure out value or to track value, which is most important. And this can be as simple as, you know, I think you're kind of, I don't know if they're quite product market fit surveys, but they, they help for much more than just product market fit. Your framework, which is kind of a mix of, and I think, you know, kind of made with Sean Ellis, you know, kind of him. Actually, what's that guy doing lately? I haven't caught up with him in a long time or seen him public anywhere. We can talk about that after we stop recording. But you and Sean Ellis kind of put together. And then the one that we use is we kind of step through a couple of different tools one is like willingness to pay research. There's a number of ways you can do this. It's hard to talk through in an audio format, even a video format without the you know graphs and things like that, but we've written a lot on it. And you can use Van Westendorp, which is this you know Dutch economist method, or you can use like, there's a number of different ways you can use it. But the basic idea is, is I want to track on a regular basis the willingness to pay of my customers. And I actually want to use that and they're anchored, don't get me wrong. Like, so it's not like your current customer paying $200 a month is gonna go, I'm willing to pay $600 this month. But what's really, really interesting about tracking this over time is that it's much more sensitive when you have an elasticity curve than things like NPS. So I can actually see like, am I increasing percentage points as I add these new features, as I add these different things? And is the kind of slope of that curve widening 
or is all of a sudden it's getting tighter and tighter, meaning my customers are getting more aggravated or more commoditized or more frustrated. And then the other one that uh, Heaton was referring to is um, something called Max Diff, which is kind of like a diet conjoint analysis, if you've heard of that, which is basically I go to a user and I can do this qualitatively in, in, in a conversation or via survey. And I say, hey, here are our five features that we just talked about, or here's the survey. What is the most important feature and what is the least important feature? And what that does is it not only gives you kind of a stack rank when you calculate the data, but it also gives you magnitude. And what's really cool is when you combine both of these methodologies, you get a nice, really, really rich look at, oh, this feature is really, really important to everybody, but the people who really care about it, they're not willing to pay anything. So if it's important to everybody and they're not really willing to pay more, then this is probably a core feature. Or not really anyone cares about this. But the people who really care about it, the small minority, they're willing to pay much, much more. This should be an add-on, this particular feature. And so I think ultimately to kind of wrap this, you know, this little monologue up is I think it's really important to find your framework, find what you're looking for, and make sure it's sensitive enough to the outcome that you're going after, but make sure you're going fastidiously through tracking. And it's okay when you're starting to kind of test a bunch of different things, but then run that playbook and make sure that you're, you know, using the ultimate results is churn down, is revenue up, these types of things to guide whether your framework is sensitive enough. So I'll pause there because I've, I've been on a roll here, hopefully saying, you know, somewhat insightful things, but yeah. What do you, what do you think, my man? Dude, I disagree with all that. I, I mean, I completely agree with it. You got to do all the things to really determine like what the value is. And I think the thing you said about like kind of the North star metric and like finding the right one, if you want to call it that, that is value is pretty critical at for high velocity products, right? Or products that aren't like, what, what did you call it? Non-engagement, whatever you had a name for those, like Zapier. Oh, like the passive software. I called them anti-active usage software. Anti-active usage. Yeah. I didn't like that, but I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So passive that's why software. Passive yeah, software. Passive software, right? That's the exception in a way, but kind of not because you almost have a reverse value metric. It is the North Star, which is number of people removing any of those things that they set up. And then figuring out why they removed them. Just like if you have a product that's an active usage product, it's the number of people doing the thing. And if they didn't do the thing, you're trying to get them there. Here, it's like they did the thing. Now you don't want them to undo the thing. So that's kind of the metric I'd go after. So that piece, I think that's my add-on to it. For products that are more like Zapier, you know, non-active usage, you, you set it up and you forget it and you still want to pay for it. Because if it's, I call those plumbing, because if it goes away, you know but you don't really think about it when it's there and you just keep using it or not using it because it's just there. And then on the other side, I mean, I'm, I'm a nut for the qualitative stuff because I think that just speeds up prioritization and product development. So yeah, give me all the qualitative things. <laughs> I think the thing that always just really bothers me is, and we've mentioned this before in the pod, so I don't want to like rehash it. We've said it recently is like, as a product person, you have to earn your paycheck. And I don't care if you're like a pixels product person or you're more a go-to-market product person. Like you have to earn your paycheck. In order to earn your paycheck, you have to struggle. You're not going to have perfect information. You're trying to hedge the decision, not by actions, but by research as much as humanly possible. And then you got to go. And then you'll get the, the true feedback and you got to do all this as quickly as humanly possible. And I think that there's just a lot of product people that are super lazy um, and I'm calling them out and they just kind of make these gut decisions because they think, you know, they might not think they're the next Steve Jobs, but they think like, well, Steve Jobs didn't do this, so whatever. And it's like, well, no, Steve Jobs and Apple does so much market research and so much testing. Now, they might reject 
60% of it, but they do it for that context. And then they make decisions on where the puck is going and where it should be going to kind of push things forward. And I, I just think there's so many people who reject the concept of research because of like, like I saw some meme go around the other day about like selection bias and survey bias. Basically it was like, you know, 99.1% of people answered yes to liking surveys or something like that. And it just frustrated me so much because it's like a person who's good at research or a good researcher knows how to minimize those things. And also a good decision maker with data knows how to basically take the data and discount it or increase it based on like the, the, the intensity of the data. And I don't know, it's just frustrating. It's just like, this is a little ranty, but we create these folks who are are basically just religious. Like they're just religious when it comes to building something because they think that like it's just someone's going to inspire them or some stupid blog post is going to give them the thing that is going to push things forward. And it's like, no, 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 those are all inputs. You have to filter. And if your filter is based on like gut feel or some random support ticket, you're not going to last long. But yeah, that's my, that's my little rant for you. Got nothing to say. It's all right, good. next question. So Saeed, hopefully that was more than you bargained for. Okay, so a second question from Saeed, but also from Ryan. Ryan asked a couple of questions. Product-led growth. So Ryan just kind of said more broadly, like views on product-led growth, what and where appropriate. And then Saeed asked, what are the critical factors to think about to create a successful product-led business? I feel like product-led, I haven't heard about it as much lately. And now like, but it's maybe it's because it's in the zeitgeist completely now. Now it's just a part of strategy. But what's your take? You you and I have had a couple of nice little rants on product-led. I don't think any of them have been recorded, but what's your take? And I'll just repeat Saeed's question just to be clearer. What are the critical factors to think about to create a successful product-led business? I know the folks at OpenView. I gave them some advice when they first came up with the terminology, and I think they've taken it and done a really great job. All that being said, what all these concepts are, whether it's lean startup or growth hacking, or growth teams, which are two separate concepts, most people don't know that, or product-led growth, is just like category creation, they are basically taking a set of things that people have been doing for many, many years usually, and codifying it, and putting it into a framing so that everyone can understand it, and more people can understand how it all works. So I have to like stress that. We can't be talking about these concepts as if they're new, we can't be talking about these concepts as if they're novel. We have to be speaking about the underlying principles behind these concepts. And so my answer, which I will make very short because it's very surprisingly simple. Human beings are spreading products in ways that are manual between companies, between each other. So they're speaking of these products. They're saying, hey, you should use this product for this reason or whatever. Or more importantly, they're saying, hey, can I give you my login so you can see this thing? Or they're saying, hey, I want to be able to share this thing with other people, like as a feature request, right? So the key to product-led growth is really this idea that people want to share parts of their experience with the product with other people. And you need to figure out what that means for the business you're going to get into or the business you're in, and then build those features in and make them a core value prop of the product as much as you can, not just an add-on. So Calendly is the classic, classic example where the product spreads itself because of the specific value prop within the product itself, which is basically 
This is going to make it easier for both of us, both parties or multiple parties to schedule a meeting and make sure that everyone makes it and can make it. So that's my kind of consolidated point on all this, which is it's all about what people want to do and accelerating and amplifying those experiences with software and tech. We're going to leave it at that. I thought that was great. Thank you. I'll take that. My follow-up was going to be very tactical and almost trite in the context of a nice, concise, bold statement, which I thought was good. All right. So we're going to move on. That's what we're going to leave it there. We got a couple of folks asking about, so Eco asks us, how do you properly manage a team working and collaborating remotely for a global clientele? I think it's Cell, T-S-E-L-L. Apologize, sir, if I got that wrong. Remote first company leadership, starting new companies as remote first, all kinds of fun stuff around remote. We've talked about remote before. Let's talk about particularly from a leadership perspective. And and here's here's kind of like my sub question here. I do really well in person in front of a group. Not sure that necessarily translates via Zoom. And it's maybe on me, that type of thing. So as a leader, how do you make sure you're you're being effective? from a remote perspective. And I think what I'd love for you to get into is not only just documentation, but also like some over communication, the async stuff we talked about, but I'm not anti-remote at all, but I am I am uh, definitely not as experienced as you with the world of remote. So I'm going to let this one over to you as well. It just has everything to do with ways of working. And that's just the bottom line. Everything you said, all the you know things you rattle off, it's just ways of working. And based on the environment at the company, whether it's remote, hybrid, whatever, the ways of working need to adapt and be adopted and be and evolve for whatever the environment is that's changing or whatever environment you're in. I think you and I will have fun on this convo for the next few minutes because let's not get into tactics and let's really talk about what matters and the ways of working matter. The tactics, yeah, you rattled off a bunch, totally cool. But let's just think about this for a second and I'll talk personally about it too. For the last 18 years, I've worked remotely. Most of the companies I've run didn't have an office. And even if they did, I did not show up in the office very often. When I did at Kissmetrics for a stint, I would sit on the couch. I did not have a desk. Other people had desks. There were salespeople running around. Yeah. Quick clarification question, because I think this is something that I think is interesting. How often would you have seen, on average, someone in person? Like, did you meet up as a team once a year, anything like that? Or... Is it just like remote, remote, remote? And maybe if they're in town, like you grab coffee, but nothing too crazy. We're going to have to do a whole podcast on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious though. I don't believe in offsites for my own teams. Dang, that's a whole episode. I am completely aware of the benefits. I am completely aware of them intimately. I have joined other companies offsites because they've invited me. I'm not like, hey, no one should do offsites. No way. Like, I'm not trying to say that. Like, I don't want anyone to think that. But for our teams, if any leader on our team or anyone suggests it, they'll see my face change. They won't see it. Like, you won't see it if you ask me or we talk about it because, like, cool, whatever. But if you're talking about my companies, oh, hell no. And I have some very specific reasons why. So that's my response to you. We should definitely just save it. Okay. But at the end of the day, the thing I was going to say is I was doing remote when it was Skype. And we just had Skype. And this was Skype without video. Video Skype is new. <laughs> Voice Skype is OG. I was doing this when we had to use the phone. And we use the phone a lot. I don't want to be mean to anybody. So that's not what I mean by my next statement. But like, 
do you know how to talk to people? Like, just, can you talk to people? Like, can you just talk to them? Like, on the phone? Like, don't you already do that? Don't you call your mom and talk to her? Don't you know when she's not feeling great? Don't you know when she's disappointed about what you said? Like, don't you? Well, then why can't you build a relationship with another human being just with your voice? I'm not even going to an extreme and saying, hey, only do it text. I'm not going to an extreme and saying, only do it async. No way. I'm just saying, like, turn off the video and talk to somebody and tell me that you can't feel how they feel or you can't understand them. Like, just just tell me that. Like, even if you're someone who has a hard time doing that and needs to read books to, like, understand inflection points and voice, and all, I, I respect that. I get it. But, like, anyone can learn it. So I've built relationships for 18 years focused on using my voice and listening to those people and speaking in order to build extremely long-term relationships in business. And I can prove it. So if anything, we all should just get better at communicating, period. And communicating when we're not in person, period. (laughs) That's it. I know you said you don't want to get tactical there, but it's like so meta. Like, how do you do that? Just practice communicating? What's your take there? Like on your next call, down. turn off the video. Oh, interesting. Add some constraints. Turn off the video on your next call. If there's nothing that needs to be done on video, if there's no screen sharing and you're just having a meeting, turn off the video. Even if you're doing screen sharing, turn off the video. Is the next logical thing there too? Like, do you have better communicating? Like, write a memo? Write a memo. Yeah. I mean, Amazon runs on this. Everyone I talk to tells me Amazon runs on this. I don't think it's a joke. I don't think it's like a myth. Amazon runs on this, the six-page memo. You know, I heard a little bit about how Jeff Bezos does investments from his Bezos expeditions. Someone's writing him something about the companies that they want him to invest in. And then that someone is getting a response from Jeff Bezos himself. And it's not a voice convo between Jeff and the company or Jeff and the person that's facilitating the process. It's not. It's text. Jeff might never even meet your company. He might never even know who you are. He might know your company. He might know that he invested in it. So like, come on, we're making this too hard on ourselves. And we're just not doing the things that are basic. That's why tactics, cool. Like we can rattle off lots of tactics. Like I've got all kinds of tactics, but I think we're making it too hard by thinking we need to be on video. And that's the way that we build relationships. Like, I mean, I used to talk to my wife when we were 15 on the phone more than I saw her in person because that's when I met her, right? And we would stay up to like 1 a.m. and someone would be pissed in the house or her brother, who's my brother-in-law now, would like, like there's been times when he's like snuck under her bed and listened in, right? Like you're talking about like a human thing that we've been used to for a very long time, not since the Stone Ages, of course, very long time. And even in the Stone Ages, how do they, I mean, do they not talk in the dark when they couldn't see each other? I like that. So that's my like ridiculous, like, come on, like, look, much respect to even the tool we're using right now and all the video tools out there and all the people really trying to make this work, Volley and this and that and Tandem, all good. Like, please, by all means, build tech, try to solve these problems. Someone actually DM me, uh, someone I talked to a while ago, I think they even tweeted and they're like, hey, thanks for the feedback on our tool, blah, blah, blah. And then they DM me and said, hey, here's our new landing page. You know, we were focused on productivity. Now we're focused more on connection. You know, my response to them is like, hey, proving the productivity of connection at work is much harder than what's already hard, which is proving the ROI of productivity tools. So it's like we're in a world where people want to experiment and I'm all for it. We're in the world where like you have those virtual game thingies with the office looking like a game or whatever virtual world. 
All good. I don't want to hate. I don't want to poo-poo. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that like on a very fundamental back to basics ways of working level, we are just as a society not used to working when we're not in person and don't have a 3D experience. And yet in a lot of other places in life, like you want to catch up with your best friend that's across the country, what you going to do? You used to just do a phone call. Now you might make it a Zoom. You might make it a FaceTime. Okay, totally cool. Technology has helped that. But why are we relying on these new like technologies? Video is a new technology in order to build human connection that we've been doing for many years, forever, since the phone, via voice. That's my problem. That's my rant. It's not that I'm against any of this stuff. It's just like, come on. We're using technology as the excuse that prevents us from having true human connections in very basic mediums and formats, which are honestly way more fun. Like I love walking around and talking. I don't want you to see my face. It doesn't matter. Those are some of my best, most productive conversations when I'm not on a video call and I'm on a phone call or equivalent. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like two questions I have, cause one, I know this isn't what you're saying and it's not, it's not what you're saying at all, but it's like my, my, my first instinct was to be like, you know, get off my lawn in my day. Like we didn't need all these newfangled, like there's a little bit of that. I'm okay with that. Right. That's why I'm saying I love my all question these new there tools, is, is like, but if yeah. these tools, I guess what you're proposing is like these tools are great as forcing functions and supplements, but oftentimes we use them as a crutch. Is that like a good summary? Very accurate. Okay. Like That's I said, I'm not a hater. I'll repeat many times. This might sound like I'm yeah, hating yeah, on this and stuff. And you guys use... You guys use all types of tools for this. Yeah, yeah. I really don't like using new startup tools for communicating and improving our ways of working. It really annoys me because they break. They're built very brittly. That's a different rant. If they were, if I could trust them, I would feel very differently. But the company I trust the most with video is Zoom. And I, I, I can't even get Hangouts to work right, even with their new improvements. So like there's God, partially hangouts. like... There's just, a, it's a product. Like why? Just work. Just work. <laughs> there's a partial, I don't have enough time in the day to mess with these tools. And I'm also a little ranty on this right now because like Zoom, the bed on me today with a beach ball for the first time ever. And I had to reset my whole computer to get it to work again. And I'm very good with computers. I'm like tech support supreme here. And like, it was annoying, but that's okay. It worked it out. But my point is we are just making this too complicated. Like, let's just talk. We have a problem. Let's talk. We don't need and to be on video. Talking, I don't need to talk like, more like, and figure it yeah, out. Yeah, let's just talk more and figure it out. I don't understand why people think they need video. I don't understand why people think async doesn't work either because like it all can be done. I, at the same time, I so value in-person interaction. We just talked about this, right? Are you introvert, extrovert, whatever? Like, yeah, I love human beings. I love being in physical form with them. Absolutely. Like I miss hugging you, Patrick, when we see each other and going and getting our tea and whatnot. Right. Like I miss oh, that. There's a big one coming. Right? You get yeah. ready. Yeah. I'm ready, dude. I'm ready. This happened today. I'll just say this and then take it where you want to, or maybe we're done. But like my friend texted me today and he's like, Hey, can you just hang out for lunch? And like, no one's done that to me in a while. He's a friend. I used to meet with him once a month. Like, and we had one of those long convos, you know, every month. And it was just Two and a half hours blocked off every morning at like 6 to 8.30, believe it or not, or some crazy time like that. Because like that was the best time for him and I to talk for whatever reason. He's like, hey, can you have lunch today? And like no one's asked me that in a long time. And he's like, I'll just come near you. It's totally cool. And he didn't need anything. He just wanted to see me. And I wanted to see him too, obviously. It's a tech friend of mine. And I didn't have the time. Like I did and I didn't. I had like this 90 minute window. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. If we do this, it's going to have to be at this place and between this and this. And I know you're like 20 minutes away and I'm about 10 minutes away from there or five. But is that cool? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then I hung out with him and like I'm energized from hanging out with my buddy today in person. And I love that. So again, the operator and business person in me, though, is like, wait, hold on. We're doing work here and let's focus on the work and let's make sure that we, we have our ways of working that facilitate work first. Right. That's what's important at work. And I can't stress that enough. Like even our head of engineering, I've worked with him for 10 years in the last seven or eight. I've seen him less than five times in person and he doesn't live more than an hour and a half from me. Interesting. So anyway, that's, Talk I more. don't know. This topic gets me ranting. <laughs> it's remote work. Like, I don't know. I like opening <laughs> the rant. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's just too easy. We got one last question. Well, there's a couple more, but I think this is the last one we're going to answer from our buddy Samuel over at User Onboarding. How do you track whether LTV is going up or down? You're taking it, bro. He's been on an LTV kick. You're taking it. Okay, I will. It's Samuel. He's a good friend. What what was that about to be? This is a Samuel-like question on Twitter. So I know. And it's one of those things where I think a couple weeks ago we got into LTV conversation. So let me back up. I don't know if I'm going to answer his question because Samuel, he likes specific. He'll have more and, and he can ask them for sure. And we'll do our best. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. It's Samuel. First of all, it's Samuel. All yes. We like Samuel. We're not Mutual saying we love. Like Samuel. Major love. Samuel, <laughs> first of all, Wu-Tang fan, which is a prerequisite for, sure. for friendship. Yes. And but some of the most of all, epic content on product on the planet, in my opinion. Straight up. The Super Mario Brothers thing. Like, dude, that. Oh yes. my God. I just want to tweet it right now. I'm going to go fight it and tweet it. Cause like that Samuel. can't be understated. Yes, Samuel exactly. is one of the best minds in onboarding, but also in product. product. And I think he's also a good follow on Twitter because he dips his hands into some certain social issues and stuff like that, which I think is really smart because he's, he's, he's always challenging in a good way, in a way that you're not like, screw this guy in a way that you're like, Oh, that made me think more. That's awesome. But Samuel asks, how do you track whether LTV is going up or down? So first Lifetime value is a function of your pricing and it's a function of your retention, right? So that's the first thing. So theoretically, if you figure out how to improve your ARPU or ARPA or ACV, however you're describing it, or you figure out how to improve your overall retention, that can help you move LTV up or down. But what I think Samuel's getting at, because we kind of talked about it previously, is like historically, if you are earlier stage or low volume, Lifetime value sensitivity is kind of all over the place. So we specifically inside ProfitWell, and this kind of gets us in trouble sometimes, we didn't take like the standard LTV calculation. What we ended up doing is we took the standard LTV calculation and then we basically applied a dampening algorithm on top of it in order to basically like make sure that you're able to not see just like random up and downs, these big spikes and these big valleys. And so what I recommend doing with lifetime value, we're going on a nice uh, deep journey of lifetime value now, but what I recommend doing with it is I want to look at its parts, as I mentioned, ARPU as well as retention, and look at how those are moving, because presumably that's almost an early indicator of how my lifetime value is going to move. But I also like to segment the hell out of my lifetime value and look at it on a time-lapse basis. So things like plan type history. And that's where I start to see like, what are the differences? And when you look at that on a historical basis, even on a month to month basis, um, you start to run into a world where you can start to see like the needle being moved, as they say. 
Now, I do not look at lifetime value in real time right now based on our our model inside sales, deal, like not closing deals every single, well, you know, we're getting to the point of closing deals every single day, but not like, you know, high volume, $10 per month product. I look at lifetime value typically on like at most every two weeks, and that's more out of morbid curiosity, at most kind of like once a month. I kind of think about, I want to move my ARPU and I want to move anything with our retention also on a monthly basis, but I might kind of like track the plays that are going out and the segments that are going out. So yeah, long-winded answer. Hopefully I answer. We're going to do an episode on this. I don't know if it's exactly okay. Samuel's question, but I want your LTV rant. Okay. Yeah, we can get my LTV I, re- I really do. You can kind of get a metrics rant too, because I think, yeah, I kind of already had a mid, mid-episode mid metrics rant. But so I, think I would like, say Samuel's going to be sponsoring that episode. Yep. And you're going to talk about CAC LTV, and I'll throw in some shade about metrics, and we'll be good to go. But that's what we need to do. This is such an old-school debated topic, right? And you're the genius on this stuff, in my opinion. What's your take on what I said? so far to set up that episode. You're good, but like the whole thing needs to be unpacked like no other, right? Like if you don't, if you don't unpack it, like you don't answer Samuel's question. That's true. His divisive question that. Which is a no Samuel special. A we appreciate us. that. Yes. No, it's good. All right, cool. Well, anyways, thank you for the question, Samuel. Thank you for the question, yes. everybody else. This was good. We'll I like this. I like running through this because this is, you know, it gives us jumping off points. And sometimes it's it's hard for you and I to find some jumping off points. Anything else? Anything to close the close the loop here? I'm good. I'm good. That was uh, let's fun. do a quick recap. We talked about remote, talked about LTV. We talked about async communication. We talked about product-led growth. We talked about how to measure value on a product team. And we talked about Brian. We talked about community building, and I think that's about it, man. Anything else you want to end with? I know I already asked you that, but maybe you thought of something in the last 10 seconds. No, this was a very uh, long-winded, sprawling conversation in a good way about many different topics, and I look forward to diving in on a few of them. So it's going to be great. If you liked it, let us know. If you hated it, let us know. But we'll see you all next week. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast. Or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 